Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and this is a podcast. Is it my podcast? Is it your podcast? Is it anybody's podcast? Does it even matter? Because humanity doesn't deserve such horrors as this podcast. So bleak. So bleak. And that mm-hmm. is because we're going to talk about a pretty bleak movie with a lot of existential ruminations, much like Jason just offered up for us. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1953. And we are at our first feature episode. We are going to talk about the uh, lesser known, let's say, uh, debut feature film from Stanley Kubrick, who we just talked about a couple episodes ago for our special Halloween episodes when we talked about The Shining. And so this is on the all the way other end of his career from that. It's a film called Fear and Desire that um, he made as a 24-year-old. It is a small independent production that he did not seem to care for and worked hard to suppress for many years after its release before it was widely made available on home video um, after he died. So an interesting curio, let's say, in the career of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he called it a bumbling amateur exercise and he wanted it never to be released, including, uh, I think, asking like one longtime assistant to never watch it if it comes out. Um, so, but, you know, when I saw Fear and Desire on the uh, list, I thought we were talking about your sex life. Oh, man, that was not. Leave that. Leave that stuff in the basic instinct episode. <laughs> we already went through all this. <laughs> so I will say, though, I, Jason, I don't know what your reaction was. Uh, not that this is on the level of The Shining or anything, but I feel like Kubrick is far too hard on himself about this film, that it's. It's a perfectly promising first effort from someone so young with limited resources. I agree. I mean, you know, there are certain things that, um, you know, they had to cheat and the budget went up to make it look coherent, right? Like, or to make it not seem incoherent is a better way to say, because it, it's a coherent movie, right? But there were little tricks that they had to do, like reversing some film shots if someone like, you know, crossed the access line or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, what, maybe a little too much voiceover to get us there, but it's a fine effort. You're right, Josh. Yeah, and and I think the voiceover came from, at one time, Kubrick wanted to make this a silent film, actually, which would also have saved budget-wise. And I think most of the, the on-screen dialogue seems like it's it's ADR work, which can also be a little awkward, although I thought it was well done here. So yeah, the voiceover is, is maybe a way to uh, help transition scenes where there would just be no dialogue for very long stretches and it would seem weird. And I, I thought the voiceover was pretty effective, though. It wasn't bad, Josh. I'm, I'm with you. All right. So, yeah, this was initially it's, you know, it's hard to find numbers uh, on movies from this era of any kind, but especially something that's as small as this. But, you know, if we believe Wikipedia references, this was a movie that was initially budgeted around ten thousand dollars with funds that Kubrick got from family members and with those new efforts, as you say, Jason, to kind of expand it and make it more coherent and add sound and whatever, eventually had a budget somewhere between forty dollars and $50,000. I don't know what it did at the box office. Those numbers are not available. Supposedly, it was not a particular success, but it did get 
a decent sized theatrical release. It seems like in in quite a few cities, it was picked up by a small distributor on the strength of the early short documentaries that Kubrick had made. He'd also worked as a photographer for Look and based on that experience was able to move up to directing a fiction feature. It showed at the Venice Film Festival, which is a pretty respectable premiere in August 1952 under the title Shape of Fear. It was then picked up for distribution in the US and released theatrically in 1953. So, I mean, all of that sounds like a good launch for a movie like this. Well, you know, Josh, as uh, as as we know from Kubrick's later work, right, like Eyes Wide Shut, how long did it take him to make that movie? Yeah, longer than it took him to make this movie, certainly. But I feel like I, there's a certain advantage to the, the scrappiness here that he may be lost in his later career. I, I'm just saying, yeah, no, that's a fair point. What I'm saying is like, you know, if he's a guy who's always tinkering and tinkering, like you and I can watch him and be like, hey, that's pretty good. But he's probably like, here's something I want to fix. Here's something I want to do over again. Here's something we shouldn't have done. Right. So I think that's probably where he's coming from. Yeah. And I'm sure you're right. And I'm sure he felt that way about every one of his films, including the big, huge, you know, large budget productions from later in his career. But I think there's a difference between looking at this now, there's some things that I would have done differently and please don't ever watch it and destroy every copy of it that was ever made. And I wonder, because like you said, it did get a decent sized release and it was at Venice. Like at what point did he say that? Because I know what, like the distributor died and then they said like all of the all of the distributors like film stock was lost. So at that point, maybe that was the point where he said like, hey, I'm glad it's lost. I don't I want to just move forward and never look back at this again. Right. And that may be the case. And and even the reports that he was trying to like like actively trying to destroy copies of this movie are rumors. There's no specifics. He did maybe, as you say, tell one of his associates, please don't watch it, or was asking some repertory program not to show it. But was he, you know, traveling the world, <laughs> tracking down copies of this and setting them on fire? Probably not. I mean, that's, a you know, as you mentioned, he had made some documentaries before. I wouldn't want to watch that documentary. Yeah, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's yeah. quest to destroy his film. Um, yeah. yeah, that Desire to destroy fear and desire for fear of it getting out. There you go. There you go. There but you yeah, it seemed like it, it, it was lost fairly quickly because, as you said, Joseph Burston, who was the distributor, died in 1953 and then... Seemingly, this this disappeared at that point and was virtually forty years right unavailable at all for forty years and and then even very sparsely available for another twenty years or so after that. But it was released again in a in a in a decent size release in 1953. It got press coverage and was considered you know a reasonable film release. And a lot of the Oh, basically, all of the reviews that I found focus on the idea that this is rough, but promising. So A.H. Yeah. Uh, Weiler in The New York Times said, the need for encouragement of fresh talent and its fairly common concomitant, the audacity of youth, was never made more pointed than in Fear and Desire, the drama fashioned by a tiny group of young independent filmmakers. For in essaying a dissection of the minds of men under the stress of war, Stanley Kubrick, 24-year-old producer-director-photographer, and his equally young and unheralded scenarist and cast have succeeded in turning out a moody, often visually powerful study of subdued excitements. 
If fear and desire is uneven and sometimes reveals an experimental rather than a polished exterior, its overall effect is entirely worthy of the sincere effort put into it. Did you say scenarists? Yeah, scenarist, which is uh, means the screenwriter. Huh, I've never heard that word. Yeah, it's a it's an old timey word. Uh, some A. H. Wilder. That sounds like a guy who would use the word scenarist. Yeah, you know the New York Times back. <laughs> I mean, anyone back at back in this uh, back in this time period, they're using language of their moment. Mm. Stay golden, pony boy. Yeah, thank you. That's that's your that's your your I, thought on I, that. <laughs> you lost you lost me at scenarist, Josh. No, I agree. It's good. I think three out of the four main characters are well drawn. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff that doesn't work, but like um, we've covered many first time efforts on this uh, podcast where uh, we see the promise of a filmmaker going forward. Yeah, I definitely thought of the Scorsese film that we talked about. Who's that knocking at my door, which I think is similar to this in that it was done on a very small budget. It was kind of cobbled together. Scorsese was very young. It premiered at a film festival. It got a limited release later on. And the difference being that Scorsese, as far as I know, has not disowned that film and it's remained available, but it's certainly something that mainly people are looking at as, oh, this shows the promise of a later filmmaker more so than this is a great film. And it's interesting for him to disown it going because of what he became, right? You would think like if anything, he'd be like, um, yeah, look at what I had come from and look at where I had gone to or whatnot, you know? So Yeah, but, you know, again, I think, you know, you were talking about how meticulous he was and, and maybe that goes in the same direction of kind of crafting the narrative of his career. And he wants people to see him just burst forth fully formed. I, I don't know. We, we can't really uh, speak to his motivations. He's you want around. him. You're saying he wanted to be the scenarist of his own career. He did. He did indeed. So Jane Corby in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle said, you've seen war pictures. You've never seen a war picture like Fear and Desire. It is an effort, successful for the most part, and at times brilliantly so, to translate war in terms of the thoughts and emotions that accompany routine acts of war. Fear and Desire was made by two young men, Stanley Kubrick, who produced, directed, photographed, and edited the picture, and Howard O. Sackler, who wrote it. It is their first film, and their youth and inexperience often shows, both in the treatment of the story and the technical details of the picture. Fear and Desire is an unpolished production full of flaws, but its mistakes are the result of its bold effort to discard old formulas and make a different movie, and in this, it has been successful. Yeah, you mentioned Sackler. The two of them were classmates at William Howard Taft High School, and uh, Sackler went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for the play The Great White Hope in 1968. Yeah, I think one of the cool things is that this is made by these two guys who are friends from high school and uh, the composer who was also a student, Gerald Freed, and all of whom just went on to these major careers. I, you know, I love that when it's just like buddies who get together to collaborate and then not just the director, not just Kubrick, but they they all have the talent to to go along to these these amazing careers and that they gravitated toward each other so early on. Well, Josh, you and I started writing stuff together in high school, and uh, we went the complete opposite way. We went on to create the acclaimed <laughs> podcast, Awesome Movie Year. So I don't know what you're talking about. It's, uh, it's no great white hope. 
<laughs> no, 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 it is not. Um, one of the things that Jane Corby mentions there, I, I think was was something also that came up in a lot of these is that this is so different from war movies that we see at the time. I feel like now we're used to war movies that are questioning the idea of war, that are questioning the toll that it takes on people. But that was not so common in 1953. And I think this is an ambitious film in a lot of ways in, in, in its conception of war. It's, it's this sort of abstract idea, the narration at the beginning saying that this isn't a specific war. These aren't specific sides. This is sort of an, a, a representation of all wars, although this was produced during the time of the Korean War. So I, I think credit to them for not just saying, hey, what can we shoot for a little bit of money in the mountains nearby, but actually thinking of something challenging. Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously it's a theme he's come back to over and over again. I think a full metal jacket, you know, for that. Um, as kind of the height, at least of what I've seen. I haven't seen Paths of uh, Glory. Paths of Glory? Right? Yes, Paths of Glory, which, and that was his big breakthrough film later in 1957, which I also haven't seen. But certainly this was something on his mind in that film and, and in Full Metal Jacket, which is the more well-known film of his many years later. I mean, even Dr. Strangelove, right? True, you know, true. Talks about a lot of this. So that, that is a good point. I'm glad you uh, brought it up, Josh. I, I'm just the idiot playing idiot today, but you're on the game. You don't really have to insult <laughs> yourself in order to acknowledge that point, but but okay. That's just saying into. you did well and I stunk. All right. Finally, Mildred Martin in the Philadelphia Inquirer said, Mildred Martin, does she know A.H. Wilder? This is what people were named back then, man. I don't know what to tell you. I feel like I'm watching an episode of The Gilded Age, right? <laughs> it's not quite that old. <laughs> She said, Kubrick's Fear and Desire, written by the also youthful Howard O. Sackler, is a heartening experiment. It is not the action, but the thought behind it, which the dedicated young filmmakers a little gropingly have tried to present in dramatic terms. In view of the difficulties of a theme which might well have stumped more experienced artists, they have been notably successful. Produced on a shoestring, without sets, and with only a burning desire to mold an old medium to a new form, Fear and Desire is almost as exciting artistically for the audience as it must have been for those involved in its making. It's fun hearing stuff like that because, you know, we've done like Tarantino and like some of our favorite filmmakers, right? First features and they're like, there's this youthful exuberance and this energy to it. And we can't wait to see where they go forward because there's such a, um, you know, lack of fear of what they're going to create. And um you know, we never think of Kubrick like that. We think of him as like this meticulous master. Right. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to see. I mean, this is the theme in all of the reviews and all of the press coverage that I found in in searching databases for this. I, I found something in the Miami Herald that I thought might have been a review, but it turned out to be a little like news blurb about Miami native goes has success in Hollywood because Howard Sackler was originally from Miami and talking about how, oh, his film was well reviewed in the New York Times and, and this kind of like little local newspaper coverage that I loved. It, it's always strange because I, I always think of Kubrick, even though he's from Brooklyn, right? I always think of him as British. Right. That's where he spent the bulk of his uh, adult life, at least where we knew it, right? And then I I can 
I can't even picture him as a young person. <laughs> right. It is sort of a weird thing. No. He seems like someone who was always a cranky old man. Right? <laughs> as I joked about, Dave kind of looks like him. And like, so when I see Dave, I'm like, that's the youngest Kubrick could have ever been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kubrick started his life in his 40s. Yeah. That's how yeah. it was. I'm pretty old yeah. already. Yeah, it is amazing to read that kind of coverage and and from people who, of course, had no idea what would what would go on to happen with Kubrick's career. Um, I did want to quote one other little short thing, and this is another where, you know, we're talking about the old timiness of it. So this to me kind of blew my mind, even though maybe it shouldn't have, but Walter Winchell still Mm. writing his syndicated column, the idea of Walter Winchell and Stanley Kubrick existing in the same time period just seems wrong to me. But for some reason, he gave it a tiny little mention in one of his columns. He said, the movie Fear and Desire is more arty than artistic. But the musical background offers superior vibrations. That's all he had to say. I saw it at a dinner party with Lillian Gish. Right, exactly. It's just so weird. But but I mean, I I then I was so baffled by this. I just like I looked him up and he was writing into the 1960s, apparently. So I just always think of him as this like 30s, 40s guy on the radio with the, the telegraph sound and, you know, hello to the ships at sea and all this stuff. But but there he was watching right. a Stanley Kubrick movie right. somehow. Right. And we talked about uh, the lost project of, uh, was it Michael Chimino was going to make the uh, Walter Winchell, Robert De Niro uh, starring oh, vehicle yeah, at one point in time? Oh, yeah, I think that might have been. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just had to throw throw Walter Winchell in there. Well, uh, anytime I can make a Lillian Gish reference for no reason, it's a good day, Beautiful, Josh. beautiful. Yeah. Lillian Gish still making movies uh, into the the second like 90s, right? 80s. Yeah. yeah, I think the 80s, maybe I'm trying to remember a movie that she did with Betty Davis was sometime in the 80s. I think the whales of August. Anyway, that's not relevant here. Yeah. So <laughs> what else do you want to say about the background of this film, Jason? Uh, I thought it was, you know, in one of the reviews you had, they had said, like, there's no sets. They're just like scraping together, you know, a background, but they're not. They're really using the scenery of the San Gabriel Mountains in California really well. Like it looked like a war zone to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way this is set up again, where they say essentially this is it's no place, it's no time. It, it, it feels like that. And you're not wondering like, oh, does this look like Germany or does this look like Korea or wherever you might think of a modern you know, or a contemporary war having taken place. But yeah, it it, it, it gets that feeling and the, the mists and the way the narration goes and all of it builds to that kind of feeling. Josh, also, it's good to know that the marketing team, they were idiots even back then. When it came out, uh, the tagline was trapped, four desperate men and a strange half animal girl. Yeah, it makes it sound like some sort, <laughs> right? They got to sell it. They got to sell it to drive-ins or whatever yeah, at the time. It didn't work. No, no, that is definitely not uh, an effective tagline. I mean, it might have been an effective tagline to get people to go see it, but those people would not have been happy. I mean, she's not a half animal girl. She's just a woman who doesn't speak English. I mean, you it's 1953. So yeah. that is basically the same thing, right? Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I assume we, none of us had seen this film before. No, I had told you guys in preparation for, uh, Reservoir Dogs, I had watched The Killing, which was the oldest Kubrick movie I had seen up until that point. But I know both you and I watched this and, um, Killer's Kiss right after this, his next movie. Yeah. And I also watched The Killing for this too. So those Killer's Kiss and The Killing are the early Kubrick movies that I think are more widely seen. 
They're both these kind of noirish crime dramas. And uh, and I, I like them both. I know you loved The Killing, Jason, when we yeah. mentioned it on our Reservoir Dogs episode. Yeah, I like all three. And it's fun to see even like they're talking about, you know, um, how it's kind of like slapdash in this one. Like just how um, in um, the next one in Killer's Kiss, how like how he's able to move the camera in such a, a technical manner after that. True. Although I thought there were a lot of really striking images in this movie. This didn't look like something that they just threw together. There were a lot of really well-considered shots, I think, that 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 I thought were powerful. And maybe we'll we'll talk about that in more detail in the next segment. But uh, I, yeah, I'm with you. I didn't I didn't I didn't look at this like, oh, it's just a home movie some dude made. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Dave, had you seen this ever before? No, I had never seen it before, and I, I still haven't seen The Killing. I haven't seen much of the early earlier Kubrick, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Yeah, I think that stuff is really good, and I think there's a looseness that's appealing to it that is maybe, again, lost in some of his later films where he was just so obsessively meticulous. So we'll come back and get into more of our general thoughts on Fear and Desire. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Stanley Kubrick's debut film, Fear and Desire. And, and I think, if, as we've said, we, we all thought this was better than Kubrick himself seemed to think that it was. Yeah. What has that guy ever known? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think going into this, I thought, oh, this is going to be a curiosity. This will be something for us to discuss in the context of. Kubrick's later development. And I think that's partly why, you know, before we did this episode, we were talking about let's watch those other films because that's really what we'll talk about is the early development of Kubrick's career. And those other films are interesting and we will talk about them. But I think this movie on its own is perfectly worthy. I agree. Um, like I said, good uses of environment. There was like a what, a 14 person crew, including Kubrick's first wife, Toba Metz, and my favorite, uh, Three Mexican laborers who transported the film equipment around the San Gabriel Mountains. I mean, you, sometimes you got to hire day laborers. No, I, I, I mean, it's like, you know, hey, people need work and here's jobs. And it's like, let's be innovative about it. Right. right. I'm sure this wasn't a union production. So <laughs> that wasn't a concern. But yeah, and, and Kubrick's wife, I think, has a brief appearance as one of the women Oh, one they? of the half animal women <laughs> exactly one of the half animal women in the river who not not the one that the that the soldiers end up kidnapping played by virginia leith but there's a couple others there who are i don't know they're like washing stuff or whatever they're doing in the river there when the the soldiers are hiding from them yeah and uh, one of those was kubrick's wife so, so josh uh talking about those like kind of little Bowfinger style tricks of making a movie, right? I, I'm guessing you read it, but you know they didn't have like a dolly, so you, they used the baby carriage for track for tracking shots, um, which is cool. Like I've used wheelchairs before, and you know rolling chairs. Um, not to compare myself to Kubrick, Josh, because Do it. I compare because yourself I, to Kubrick. I I never could, Josh, because I love all of my work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're but, not trying to suppress those early high school films. No, no, no. Apparently, everyone else's though. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but my favorite of of those facts is to create fog. Kubrick used a crop sprayer, but the cast and crew was nearly asphyxiated because the machinery still contained the insecticide used for its agricultural work. 
you got to clean it out before you use it for your film. I think that's that's important stuff. Good lesson. Yeah. Notice there was uh, no near asphyxiations on Killer's Kiss. These are the lessons you learned. Right. We learned. Yeah. So I think we should say, because this is a movie that probably a lot of people haven't seen the plot of this film. It is, as we said, set in some unspecified war in an unspecified country. We don't even necessarily know that these characters, the main characters are meant to be Americans. Although, of course, these are American actors speaking English. So we assume it. Yeah, but but also credit to him for not going down that road of like, hey, let me take a person of color and just make them uh, an undefined bad guy because we're Americans fighting them, right? Right, yes. Although apparently the marketing team just assumed that that was the case anyway with that awful tagline. But yes, they are. So there are these four maybe American soldiers who have crashed their plane behind enemy lines and they are attempting to get back across to their own side without being spotted by the enemy and in the course of doing this, they're, they first attempt, they're going to make a raft so they can float down a river that will take them back across the lines. But then they spot a, a sort of an outpost with an enemy general and decide that they ought to attack and maybe take out this general as a way to, I don't know, make the best of the fact that they're stuck here behind enemy lines. They do get spotted by this woman who they decide that they need to kidnap and tie up so that she doesn't reveal their position. and. A young soldier played by Paul Mazursky, he kind of uh, doesn't handle it well when he's supposed to watch this woman as the others go to to scout for a position. So that that's kind of the basics here. Yeah, he descends into madness. Uh, I would say you could argue, I mean, we've seen soldiers in different movies descend into madness. Uh, this one was a little quick descent, like, oh, she doesn't speak my language. Now I'm going crazy, right? So... But uh, that character, Sydney, they said that story he told was a retelling of The Tempest. Did you yeah. That? Yeah. I got that when he's talking about the, the magician or whatever. He's trying to entertain this woman, impress her, I guess. And he's, he seems to be telling her the story of The Tempest. And, and I, I agree with you, Jason, that it does seem a bit abrupt that he goes nuts. But I think it's established from the beginning that these guys are all kind of on the verge of going nuts when the movie starts. Yeah, you got Mac, who's kind of a very alpha male, but not the leader. And then uh, Lieutenant Corby, who's like very smooth and uh, the definitive leader. Sydney is the young white meat baby face, as they say in wrestling, the good guy. Right. You know, but he goes crazy. And then uh, there's that fourth character, Fletcher, who's just kind of there and doesn't really do much. Yeah, he he just kind of goes along. He mostly spends time with the lieutenant. And um, he's the one, they, the, the two of them are the ones who seem to come out of this with the least amount of trauma and uh, injury, I guess, I guess we could say. But I think all of them, I mean, we have, you talked about the voiceover narration. We have narration from all of these characters. And there's, there's one scene that I thought was really powerful where after kind of we establish what's going on, they've crashed, they're behind enemy lines, they're going to try to go find a position and find this river. And they're all walking through the the forest or the jungle or whatever it is. And we have all of them doing this narration basically at the same time. It's this jumble of thoughts and you can't make out a lot of specifics, but I think it was a really powerful way to show how their thoughts are all really chaotic and scared and they're all clashing against each other. I I think that's a a good uh, note, Josh. Yeah, that was a good scene. And also, you know, it's, um, yes, it's not like they had time to get their thoughts together. You still got to move the mission forward, right? 
yeah, they have to make a plan very quickly and figure out their position and move toward the river, which they do. And then they spot this house uh, across the river where this enemy general, and and again, it's not specified the war. This was made during the time of the Korean War, but the enemy figures here look more like Nazis. I think they yeah. referenced the Reich at one point. And definitely, I took them to be German, but um, you know, I, I don't know. Like they said, it could be any war, Josh. Right, right. And another interesting technique that they do is that two of the actors in this film, in addition to playing the soldiers, they play the enemy. They play the general and his sort of second in command who these guys go kill. So it's another way of emphasizing sort of the the futility of this whole situation. For you, M-R-I and I are, what? Never mind. We're all the same, Josh. People are people. Funkadelic said it best. Yeah, or uh, the Peshmo. The yeah. Didn't they say something like that too? They sure did. Yeah. Maybe that's what I meant. So. Yeah. So I, I have to be honest though, I didn't notice. Maybe I'm just an idiot. You you were praising my insights. So now we'll go back. And I didn't notice until the credits rolled that those were the same actors. Well, Josh, I never claimed you weren't an idiot. Okay, <laughs> let's not go too crazy here. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, you know, look, it's... um. That's also a good thing, right? I mean, it could be either way. You can interpret it however you want because the art's out there. Once the art's out, it's out there. It's for everyone to interpret their own way. Yes, that's true. But I do think it's deliberately done to give you that sense. And I suppose maybe if you don't consciously notice it, you realize that they do look similar. They're speaking the same language in the same accent. He doesn't try to give these guys German or or other foreign sounding accents, and he doesn't have them speak another language. The woman that they capture clearly doesn't speak English, and when she has like one oh, line, she's a she, strange half animal girl. <laughs> she is, but she has she has an accent of some kind when she does briefly speak, but but the the enemy soldiers don't. Right. So you know, after this happens, and uh, and Sydney kind of goes crazy. Uh, spoilers. Nineteen fifty three. Spoilers. He kills the woman when she tries to run away, um, and then the other three are on their mission. And uh, Mac. Uh, well, actually, Mac finds Sydney, but Sydney just kind of runs off into the river. You know, uh, leading us to believe that he's going to go uh, follow uh, Colonel Kurt somewhere. Um, yes. But but the, the other three still stick to this plan to take take out the enemy. And Mac wants to basically go on a suicide mission to open things up for the other for the two other guys. But what I found interesting, another spoiler is the general, they they get him into place. Right. And the general surrenders and then they kill him anyway. I thought that was a striking uh, maneuver of uh, and commentary on war. Yeah. I mean, clearly these guys have taken this into their minds that they have to do this. And it's not even their mission. They haven't been assigned to do this. We don't really know if this general is a valuable strategic target at all. He's just hanging out in a house with a dog. He doesn't necessarily seem like he's commanding much of anything, but they decide that they're there, so they're going to do it. They got stew in the house. They're eating stew, Josh. Well, that was a different house, I think, that they they attack earlier. That is a very powerful scene where they burst into that house where these enemy soldiers are eating stew and they really brutally murder these guys just as they're sitting there talking about, you know, someone being helpless. And uh, and then they eat the stew in this very sort of grotesque manner, I could right. say. And that's, that's a scene where 
I thought the filmmaking was really powerful. The close-ups on like the spilled food and the hands and the lifeless faces of the enemy. It was really well done. I think that's one of the scenes where they had to, um, you know, kind of use editing magic to make it work, whether it was flipping shots or adding those inserts or whatever it was. Um, there's also at the end of that scene, while these guys are, you know, just gorging on the stew, another soldier walks in and they don't they don't even wait. They just blow him up because war is hell, Josh. Right, right. That guy is I mean, presumably he's armed, but he's not drawing a weapon on them or anything like that. They just they just straight up kill him. Yeah, my favorite shots were all the stuff on the raft, like kind of going downriver. I thought that really looked smooth and uh, took us on the uh, on the water really well. Yeah. Um, so did you think you said the narration maybe was a little excessive for you? I do think it was because you have this narrator at first and then you have all these uh, subsequent narrations from the characters. Um, and I get it. They're used as transitions, but they kind of bled into each other in some ways. It was a, a lot of, you know, what's the point of this all, which is cool. Like, I get it. But if everyone's saying it, then what's the point of it all, Josh? Right. I mean, I do think the bleeding into it each other was somewhat intentional, at least the idea that they are all feeling this way. And also that that even though they're distinctive people, being a soldier, being in war is dehumanizing and, and maybe sort of causes them as people to meld together in a certain way. Huh. Well, this is uh, these are the questions we must ask about our worst instincts, Josh. Yeah. And these are questions that this film is Raising. So, I mean, I think all of this is fascinating stuff that makes this film worth seeing. That's that's a shame that, that Kubrick had it suppressed for all this time. I agree. I mean, even if this was not a Stanley Kubrick movie and it was just like a movie that someone made that we never hear from again, it's still a pretty cool movie, right? Yeah, I think so, too. And a lot of the response, even from current people, if you go on Letterboxd or whatever, is really like, ah, this film isn't really worth anything. If it weren't Stanley Kubrick, no one would care. It's boring. It's not well made. And I don't see that at all. Yeah. If you go and go for Jason at Letterboxd, you won't hear drivel like that. You'll hear much more uh, really insightful stuff. Yes, indeed. So Dave, did you like this? I did. Yeah, I, I definitely did. And I, I think that, you know, I didn't realize that either, Josh, the thing you were talking about with the uh, multiple, uh, the casting the same actors in multiple roles. And Stuff like that is like for a first time filmmaker, it kind of adds layers that you don't normally get in like a first time filmmaker's film, like things to think about after the fact. Yeah, I think that's the main thing is that a lot of times young filmmakers, they're just doing whatever they can with their resources and the, the thematic concerns are sort of secondary. Right. And sometimes that turns out really well. I mean, I feel like that's, you know, Clerks going all the way back to our first season is something like that where Kevin Smith just looked at like, what do I have at hand and turned out something that was a classic. But here I think Kubrick is, is taking another step to really think about what the thematic concerns are of this film. Yeah. Well, Josh, I think we all like it. We should rate this thing. What do you want to rate it out of Josh? Uh, I, we're always speaking horrifying things, so I, I don't know. You know, dead soldiers who uh, wanted to eat stew? I'm not sure. <laughs> five, uh, five. Uh, I don't really want to do dead soldiers. Too. All right. That's no, that's not, fine. That's, that's yeah, fine. So. Five half-animal girls? Fine. Five strange half-animal girls. Uh, it gets three from me. I enjoyed it. It's a, It's an hour. It's a... You know, uh, I, when I first started watching it, I watched it. I was watching a colorized version of it. 
Ooh. And it does not look good at all. Definitely check out the black and white. I switched over because it looks oh, really good. bad. Yeah. But uh, definitely watch the, the black and white version if you watch it. Yeah, that's I mean, this is a movie that's in the public domain at this point. So that's a, an unfortunate result of public domain movies is that they can be butchered like that. And I don't know where that I watched this movie on Canopy, which is was looked gorgeous in the black and white version. So I don't know where was the color version. The people. Yeah, I started it. I started it on Prime, you know, yeah. uh, like one of the idiot masses. And then I moved over to your erudite Canopy. Yeah, with your like, upper like, crust uh, library. That's, that's you know, free goers. for anyone, but yeah, <laughs> upper crust. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so beware, I guess, if you look for this movie on Prime Video. So I'm, I'm going to go with you, Jason. I give it three, three half animal girls. It is rough. I mean, I agree with basically all the reviewers that it is promising, but I think there's more promise and more interesting stuff than it may have been getting credit for. So three, three for me. Dave, how would you rate this? Three over here too. I'm with you all guys. Right. Across the board, Baby. pretty good. As Jason said, this is only an hour, especially if you've seen other Kubrick films and you are curious about his origins. Give this a shot. It's a it's a worthwhile uh, film. At the time of recording, it's right before the holidays are kicking in. You know, get the family gather around the TV, watch <laughs> Don't do that. Get, get some stew. Mess. Get some stew. Yeah, yeah. get some stew. Right, yeah. exactly. Maybe Perfect. you got leftover turkey. Make some turkey soup. You know, feel like you're part of the gang. <laughs> that is the worst possible way I can think of to watch this film. but uh, And watch the colorized version. Yeah, exactly. Just make your experience the worst it can be. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of fear and desire. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Stanley Kubrick's debut feature, Fear and Desire. And as we said, the immediate legacy of this film was that it basically disappeared. It, the, the distributor, Joseph Burston, died in 1953. The copyright lapsed, and so it went into the public domain, but it was basically unavailable. Kubrick disowned it. He discouraged it from being shown. It wasn't until, I think, 1993 that it had its yeah. first like repertory showing. Right, at Telluride, at the Telluride Film Festival. Yeah, and so after that, it continued to be shown sporadically, but as Jason was saying earlier, Kubrick discouraged even his associates from going to see it, and I would imagine that after Kubrick died in 1999, it was easier <laughs> for this movie to get out there, and it was still rarely shown until it was released on home video in a restored version in 2012, and now, it's very easy to see. It's on all of these different services because it's in the public domain. Anyone can pretty much pick it up and do terrible things like colorize it. But but for so many years, it was it was gone. And if people were interested in early Kubrick, they had to start with with Killer's Kiss. It's kind of fun, like um, back in the day when you would be able to like seek out these lost films, right? Whether you went to like a historical film society or there were special screenings on college campuses. I kind of miss those days, Josh, those halcyon days of collection of physical and mental media. Yeah, of course, that also meant that very few people could see it unless you were near to one of those places that would be showing. You know, if we were here in Las Vegas, nowhere would yeah. we have been able to yeah. see that film. That's true. Those bumbling fools at the Las Vegas Critic Society wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> such material. <laughs> true, true. But yeah, I mean, even in 2012, when this was first released on home video, I'm sure it was mainly just available 
you know, physically on a DVD or something. So you would still have to make an effort to seek it out. But now, now it is widely, it is widely available and you can just sit at your home right now and, and fire it up on, on a variety of services. Josh, Frank Silvera, who played Mac in this movie, was also the star of Killer's Kiss play. Two very different characters. I thought a uh, really good showcase for him. Yeah, he was, the, he was the only one in this film who had had some film credits before making this movie. And he did. Yeah, he goes on in Killer's Kiss. He plays a, a, a gangster, the, basically the villain of that film who is uh, trying to kill the main character, who's this boxer who falls in love with a, I guess she's a prostitute. It's 19, you know, the 1950s. So she's coded as like a dance hall girl or something. Yeah, like. she's a dance hall girl, Josh. She's like, she's a, a, hand, like a strange half uh, animal woman. Yeah. So uh, so Frank Silvera plays the her pimp, basically, who who owns her. And she's trying to get away from him. And the main character is in love with her and is trying to help her get away and it's uh, it's violent and but it also has a lot of these very expressionistic like insert shots there's a scene where they have a fight in like a mannequin factory in yeah. that movie and there's all these insert shots of of disembodied mannequin hands and it's it's very well artistically expressed i think yeah other than that the boxer never throws a punch that was a little <laughs> weird for me uh, Josh, you mentioned that this movie, uh, you were comparing it to kind of who's that knocking at my door and everything. Yeah. I, I was thinking La Jetée. And the reason I was thinking that is because that's another story of war that's somewhat undefined that kind of, and both of these to me, La Jetée and Fear and Desire kind of really sh like feel like forerunners to the French uh, new wave, which of course we focus on heavily in our 1967 season. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. And I mean, La Jetée was made by a French filmmaker, and this is obviously not. But but I think there is a lot of that. There's a lot of voiceover in those films. I mean, with the voiceover stuff and the war, I thought of Terrence Malick as well, like yeah. in Red Line and that that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think that's the thing is that Kubrick is ahead of his time here making this one film. It's not and not just an amateur effort. I mean, he's always been, he's like always ahead of his, like we talked about in The Shining, it took what, critics a decade to get on board with that thing? Right. No, that is true. And this film was not a financial success. He had to return to this kind of documentary filmmaking for hire in order to get the money together to make Killer's Kiss, which was another independent production. And then the killing after that was, was on a slightly higher level, but still pretty small scale. And that was what allowed him to then make Paths of Glory, which was a bigger budget film. And then from there, he was pretty much a major filmmaker for the rest of his career. But he certainly struggled early on. I think the connect the connection between this and the killing is the focus on so many characters and tying them together. And, I, and the killing has one of the great act threes of all time to me. Yeah, I know you love the killing and I, I liked it, too. But I think I liked it probably just on par with Killer's Kiss. Um, it also, both of those movies, both Killer's Kiss and The Killing rely heavily on voiceover narration. So it's not just something that he did here for budget reasons. I mean, it was a stylistic choice that he continued with. So you said, uh, as you said, Frank Silvera went on to appear in Killer's Kiss and was the only one here who had kind of a career going. He had a long career as a character actor in TV and in film. He also worked on stage. He got a Tony nomination for Best Actor in 1962 for The Lady of the Camellias. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the cast were all basically making their first appearances. So 
Kenneth Harp and Steve Coit both went on to not a whole lot. Kenneth Harp basically just had a handful. He plays the lieutenant here. He had a handful of roles until 1967. And then I could not find any information about what he might have done after that, but yeah, he stopped acting. I was, I was disappointed because I thought he was really good. I, lo- I was like, this is an actor I'd like to look out for in other things. Yeah. I mean, I think all of them do a pretty good job with the limited resources that they have. And if, where, however Kubrick found these people, if they hadn't really done much up until then, he, he did a good job with the casting. Steve Coit, also not a huge career. He was a character actor and a TV guest star in various things, but nothing particularly notable. Of that main cast, those four guys, Paul Mazursky, who plays the young guy who goes crazy, had the biggest career, not as much as an actor, but he is a a really major screenwriter and director. He was nominated for five Oscars as as a writer and as a producer of a Best Picture nominee for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Harry and Tonto, An Unmarried Woman, which was a Best Picture nominee, and Enemies, A Love Story, and worked a lot as a screenwriter and a director, as well as an occasional actor, too. I was looking through, though, I haven't seen a single movie that he wrote or directed. Did um, Art Carney win Best Actor for Harry and Tonto? Is that the one he won Best Actor for? Yeah, that may be right. I'm not sure, but maybe we talked about that when when we talked about Art Carney in our episode on The Late Shift. But yeah, have you seen any Mazursky films, Jason? No, I just know him as a character actor on seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was Play the thing. Norm. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing as well. But uh, yes, you're right about Art Carney. He did win Best Actor for Harry and Tonto. So, I mean, I think Mazursky, yeah, quite an interesting, eclectic filmography there as a writer and director. And I just, I'm not sure why I've never gotten to any of those things, but I'd be curious. Right. And an actor's director. And I think he was both, uh, I mean, dabbling, obviously, in film and theater throughout. His, yeah. Uh, yeah. So quite a, not not what you would necessarily have imagined based on just uh, his early work here. Virginia Leith, who plays the half-animal girl, she also had a small career in some films and TV, not a whole lot, known mainly for a B-movie sci-fi thing called The Brain That Wouldn't Die in 1962, which is definitely something that sounds like I would want to watch. I think I watched that back in high school, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. She's the brain. She's the disembodied head. Nice. Do you remember mm. anything about that movie, Dave? Not really, but I, I do remember the title, and I'm sure I watched it. I, I bet I loved it. It seems like the yeah. kind of thing I would have loved. He has no idea. He's saying, I bet I liked it. Dave, I, Dave's, I mean, brain, I, Dave's brain is the one that would It die. died many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The brain that never lived. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jason, as you said, Howard Sackler got a Pulitzer for The Great White Hope. He was a very successful playwright after this. Did work a bit as a screenwriter as well. He wrote Killer's Kiss, working again with Kubrick. And I think other than that is best known, although not credited for his work on Jaws, where he supposedly came up with the very famous monologue about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. So that's a contribution to film history. That's a thing for sure. Let's that go with that. Thing. Yeah. I mean, didn't he write the, uh, we talked about um, Richard Burton. Uh, didn't he write the adaptation of a Midsummer Night's Dream from the late 50s that Burton started? That wasn't something I noted down, but I didn't I didn't catch everything. So I'm sure you're I'm sure you're right. I think you it, can, I think uh, it, I, I feel good. Yeah, you're right. It, you he, did, he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. So. Yeah. When you host two trivia nights a week, Josh, these are the things you get to. There you go. Trivia is what we're all about here at Awesome Movie Year. So I did also want to mention Gerald Freed, the composer who 
was also, again, a, a, like a student at the time that they made this film, hadn't really done anything. He worked with Kubrick some more. He could, did the music for Killer's Kiss and The Killing and Paths of Glory, but went on to this massive career composing for film and television, was nominated for five Emmys and one Oscar. He is still alive. He's 94 years old, and he's still composing for random independent films as of 2020. That's exciting. Yeah. It's wild, actually. I was thinking about this because, like, you know, for the kind of budget that this movie had, I mean, you don't hear these big, bombastic orchestral scores nowadays for a little small budget film. Like, it's pretty wild. I, I really liked uh, the usage of sound in the background in a lot of these, just that yeah. kind of, like, uh, flowing, you know, just rumbling yeah. uh, a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff that he was doing for this. Yeah, it was it was impressive. And I think you're right, Dave, that it had this bigger orchestral sound than we expect. Of course, in 1953, he wouldn't have had like a little synthesizer no. to just use instead. I mean, that maybe that was the only option is to find a find a cheap orchestra on the side of the road or something, <laughs> and get them to record your score. I don't know how that worked. Uh, so uh, anything else on the legacy of this film you want to mention? Jason? I think I think we uh, we we did it uh, a good service, Josh. Uh, we all agreed. Check it out. So. I feel good about this episode. I do too. And I feel good about this movie. I think I was a little like unsure about this choice, not about Kubrick, but about this film, but it, it worked out, I think really well. And I agree, check this film out. So that is Fear and Desire. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out too, online and on social media. Sure, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on all the socials or Jay Harris comedy. Uh, as I mentioned, I host two trivia nights. You can go to the trivia party on Instagram or eat this comedy if you want to know about my other projects. And then don't forget, go for Jason on uh, Letterboxd. But do forget, go for Jason as a website like Kubrick did Fear and Desire as a movie. Yeah, Jason's going to burn the server that hosts his website at some point i hope not because it, it hosts awesome movie or two but you know oh okay yeah, yeah don't do that Jason. <laughs> um, my website hosted by google is at joshbellhateseverything.com i'm also at joshbellhateseverything on facebook at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we're doing the flop and it is quite a flop. It's maybe worth 5,000 flops, Josh, because it is the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. The cinematic effort from Dr. Seuss. So that should be something to talk about. Tune in next time for The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.